friends, and welcome back to the Healthier Together podcast. I'm your host, Liz Moody, and I'm a cookbook author and longtime journalist. This podcast is all about helping you live your healthiest, happiest life, whether that's through mindset shifts or hormone health hacks or outfits to make you feel stunning or sex or money tips. We cover it all. If you're new here, hello, hi, welcome. I am so glad that you're here. Make sure that you hit the follow button on whatever platform that you're listening on so you do not miss out on any future episodes. Next week's is an Ask the Doctor all about easy ways to identify and beat burnout, which you do not want to miss. I have such a fun episode today. It is all about hacking your blood sugar to transform your overall health. While many of us think of blood sugar as only important for diabetics, it actually impacts so many of your bodily functions. I personally first started taking blood sugar seriously because stable blood sugar is a key element of managing anxiety, as we talk about in the Ask the Doctor Anxiety Edition episode of the podcast, but that is just the tip of the iceberg. Glucose levels can also impact things like weight, fertility, energy levels, brain health, skin health, hormone health, and more. The good news is getting your glucose levels in check can be easy and, dare I say, fun. My guest today is the amazing Jesse Inchaspe. Jesse is a biochemist and the founder of the amazing At Glucose Goddess Instagram account, where she uses a continuous glucose monitor to see the effects of different hacks on her glucose levels. She's actually not diabetic herself either, but she's used balancing her glucose as a way to feel better in her body, which we talk about way more in the episode. We also talk about why blood sugar impacts your weight as much, if not more than calories, the one food that you can eat before any meal to mitigate glucose spikes, how the order that you eat food impacts impacts your blood sugar curve, why you actually shouldn't eat fruit alone, the simple hack that makes pasta, rice, and other carbs way better for your glucose and gut, how zero-calorie sweeteners like monk fruit, stevia, and erythritol impact glucose, four genius hacks for dealing with sugar cravings and an exact action plan to eat sugar in a more glucose-friendly way, the best time to work out to manage blood sugar spikes, and so much more. You can pre-order Jesse's new book, Glucose Revolution, at glucose-revolution.com, and Jesse and I would both love to hear from you, so tag at Liz Moody and at Glucose Goddess on Instagram any reactions that you have as you're listening or when you try any of the hacks. We would both love to cheer you on. All right, let's get into all of the blood sugar hacks with Jesse, the Glucose Goddess. Jesse, I am so excited for this podcast. I know that my audience is too. I talk all the time about blood sugar. I feel like I've been thinking, but I wrote about it in my cookbook when I was kind of thinking about what my dessert philosophy was when I was writing my cookbook. I was like, oh, sweets spike your blood sugar. And if we can mitigate that, maybe we can mitigate some of the negative impacts of dessert, but I've never talked about it in a real way. So I am so excited to have you on. Thank you, Liz. I'm so happy to be here. It's so lovely to meet you and to be on here and to talk all things blood sugar. I'm ready. I'm so ready. Amazing. And as a bonus, we get to listen to your really beautiful accent. So thank you for um, having such a melodic way of speaking. I'm sure we all appreciate that as well. Um, That's such a nice compliment. Thank you, Liz. Nobody's ever said that in the introduction of the podcast, so I'll take it. (laughs) Can you start us off by um, just telling me a little bit about who you are and your background and like why and how do you know so much about glucose? 
Yes, completely, completely. So I'm French, grew up in France. Um, I studied mathematics as an undergrad. And then when I was 19, something happened in my life that like propulsed me very, very quickly at a very young age into the world of caring for my health and the health of others. What happened was I had an accident and I broke my back. So one of my vertebrae exploded. It was really painful, awful. I had a very intense surgery. And then I started developing after the accident and the surgery, very intense mental health problems. So, you know, depression, anxiety, dissociation, like a lot of scary stuff. And so at that young fresh, ripe age of 19, I had a very profound realization that health is the most important thing. Like if we don't have our physical and mental health, we have nothing. That's really the foundation of a happy and fulfilled life. So I started a journey to understand how to reconnect with my body, how it worked. I really wanted to figure out how to solve my issues, you know, how to solve my anxiety, my brain fog, my, my feeling of disconnection with my biology and my feeling of misunderstanding too. I was like, I don't feel good and I don't know why. And I want to understand. So I, in order to do that, I had a plan. <laughs> so I went to grad school and I studied biochemistry to understand, you know, the inner workings of our cells. And then I went and worked in the field of genetics for five years, because back then genetics was really what we thought of as the forefront of health. And so I went to do that in San Francisco, in Silicon Valley. And while I was there trying to answer kind of unsuccessfully all of my questions around how do I feel good? How do I speak with my body? I had the opportunity to try on a glucose monitor for the first time. And so we were doing this pilot program at work and they were testing out these different technologies. And so one day they asked us who wants to try a glucose monitor. And I immediately raised my hand. I was like, me, 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 please me. <laughs> and this is another moment that really changed everything for me. As soon as I applied the glucose monitor and started to be able to see literally the inside of my body on my phone, a light bulb went off above my head. So as you know, a glucose monitor measures every few minutes your blood sugar or your glucose levels in your bloodstream and sends the data to your iPhone or to your phone. So you can actually see in real time what's happening underneath your skin. You can see what happens after you eat, if you don't eat, after you work out, after you're stressed. And I was seeing all of a sudden this sort of language of my body on my phone's screen. And for me, Liz, this was the first time that I felt finally reconnected to my biology, to my body. And this was really the beginning of my fascination for the topic. Interesting. Would you say that via your journey of learning about glucose and managing those blood sugar spikes, you've been able to make a mental health transformation or do you still have bad mental health days? What's your relationship with that now? So my relationship to mental health really changed after wearing the glucose monitor. I really was able to solve and understand many, many of the triggers of my anxiety and my brain fog. And what was really interesting is that they mostly all related to glucose levels. So I'm going to sort of walk you through, you know, what happened after I first put on the glucose monitor and all the stuff that I, that I discovered. So at first, Liz, it was kind of confusing. I'm not sure if you've worn a glucose monitor, have you? 
I haven't, I have a whole anxiety story around overchecking blood sugar. So I haven't personally done it. Okay. I understand. So at first it's can be very, very confusing. I was seeing all these spikes and these dips and I was like, what is happening? I really wanted to understand, you know, the underlying mechanisms that were doing all this stuff in a good scientific fashion. So I started diving really deeply into all the science. I started reading all the papers about glucose levels and how actually, you know, we recently found out that it's not just something that diabetics should care about. In fact, 90% of us have glucose spikes every day as non-diabetics. And these spikes lead to lots of different things and, um, you know, fatigue, cravings, inflammation, et cetera, but also they can trigger mental health things. And so for me, I started discovering that very often if I felt anxious, if I felt a bit, you know, out of balance mentally, it's because my glucose levels had been spiking or on a roller coaster and that was creating stress in my body and in my brain. So I'm in a much, 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 much better place now mentally um, than I was after my accident. And the glucose monitor helped me reconnect with my body in a really deep way and helped me start the healing process. But of course, you know, therapy has been incredibly helpful, just understanding how to process stress and how to not keep it in my body, but kind of shake to release it. And a lot of journaling, a lot of other stuff. I mean, it's an ongoing journey, but I, I feel super happy about where I am now. I would love for you to explain like in a sentence or two, like you're talking to a five-year-old, what is glucose? Glucose is your body's energy. It's like the fuel in your car. So that means we need it. We don't want to cut all glucose out completely to manage these glucose spikes. Glucose, glucose in our body is good, but spikes are bad. Is that a simplified way of saying it? It is. And actually, it's a really good question because contrary to a car, in order to get our fuel, we actually don't necessarily need to get it from the outside. So what I mean is that glucose is, you know, primordial to our survival, but even though eating it is actually the most common and easy way to get, easiest way to get it, it's not the only way. Even if you don't eat sugars or starches, your body will make glucose from within, from fats and protein. So you don't actually need to eat it. You just need to eat enough and then your body will make glucose from within if you don't eat it. Although one of the things that I really like about your work is you're not asking people to cut huge amounts of things out of their diets. You're mostly your work seems to be about adding things in and reorganizing timing. And I really like that. So we'll get into that in a second. But first, I want to talk about a few more of the things that those glucose spikes are linked to. You've mentioned brain fog and sort of the mental health issues. I know you talk about hormones and PCOS a lot. Can you talk about that for a second? Yes, absolutely. So there are very few things that um, glucose spikes don't influence and don't make worse. Um, but in the world of uh, hormones, this has been a very important topic in my Instagram community. So at its core, what a glucose spike does that affects hormones is that it triggers insulin. So every time there's a spike, your body releases insulin to take the glucose and put it away to essentially, you know, make you come back down after the spike. And when there's a lot of spikes, you start releasing a lot of insulin. And the issue is when your body has a lot of insulin in it, something fundamental happens that leads to hormonal imbalance. And what happens is that the excess of insulin prevents your body from transforming the male sex hormones into female sex hormones. So as a result, you end up with a total overgrowth of male sex hormones of testosterone and not enough female hormones. And this then leads to the umbrella of PCOS symptoms. 
So you have missed periods, acne, um, hair growth, etc., infertility. And fundamentally, they're all due to this excess testosterone, which is also due to the excess insulin, which is due to excess glucose spikes. So a very efficient way of get of, you know, combating these symptoms is to reduce the glucose spikes so that you stop the chain of effect. I think that's so fascinating. And it's such a powerful tool for managing hormones that we don't talk about regularly enough. Yeah, I agree. No, it's really incredible. And I receive a lot of messages from women who have had missed periods for years, sometimes decades, who have been unable to conceive. And by understanding their glucose levels and, you know, reducing those, those spikes, they've been able to regain proper hormonal function and they have their periods again. And a, a couple have had babies and I'm like, oh my God, Yay. so cool. I mean, yeah, it's really, really awesome. So you have a lot Lucas of power. Lucas got us babies. Right. I should send them like little, um, we should make little baby clothes. And send little them. onesies. I'm a yes. glucose goddess. <laughs> yes. So good. That would be so cute. So cute. And so I really want to make it clear that when you're diagnosed with something like PCOS, you have power. Like there is power in your plate. And um, it's really remarkable to see all the women who've been able to apply the hacks I share and incorporate them into their lives and, and change the game for them. You're listening to the Healthier Together podcast. We love talking about our gut health here on the Healthier Together podcast, which is why I'm so excited to share the life-changing Seed Daily Symbiotic. I actually discovered Seed back when I was working as an editor full-time. A bottle came across my desk, and I was instantly taken by how cute the green glass packaging is. Then I found out that that packaging was actually refillable so that Seed could share its products as sustainably as possible. And then I actually looked into the research behind Seed, and well, I was blown away. First of all, seed is not just a probiotic, it is a symbiotic. That means it contains both pre and probiotics, which is super important. In fact, if you remember my Ask the Doctor Gut Health Edition, we talked about how prebiotics are one of the most important and often underlooked components of great gut health. Let me break it down for you. Probiotics are the live bacteria that are so beneficial to our gut health, but prebiotics are the food that those probiotics need to thrive. If you don't have ample prebiotics, the probiotics you're consuming will be undernourished and not be able to help your health in the way that you want. Speaking of your health, there's also a common misconception that probiotics or symbiotics are for people with gut issues, which is so not true. Like, yes, the seed symbiotic is amazing for your gut health, but your gut health impacts everything in your entire body, your skin, your mental health, your cardiovascular health, your ability to actually assimilate the maximum amount of nutrients from all that healthy food you're eating. Having a happy gut is critical for all of it. It is hard to narrow down everything else that I love about seed. I am extremely particular with my supplements and I don't take many, but seed is just stellar across the board. It's been tested and tested and tested. Seriously, their testing process is bananas to make sure that it has 100% survival through the digestive process, which is so rare. And somehow they do all of that without needing refrigeration, which is very handy. I find that when I have refrigerated probiotics, I just forget about them and they get buried behind like old old jars of pasta sauce, whereas I keep these on my bedside table, so I'm reminded to take them every single night. They also contain the 24 strains that are the most scientifically studied to support your whole body's health. I am 
obviously passionate about this stuff. Taking care of my gut has been a key part of my own anxiety journey, and seed has been a vital part of that. So feel free to reach out with any questions. And if you like learning about gut health and how probiotics and prebiotics actually function, I highly recommend heading over to seed.com. They have a whole educational section that breaks down the science behind your microbiome in some of the easiest to understand ways that I have ever seen. And if you'd like to try Seed for yourself and pretty much change your life forever, you can get 15% off your first month's supply of Seed's DS01 Daily Symbiotic by going to seed.com slash daily dash symbiotic and using the code Liz Moody. Again, that's code Liz Moody on seed.com slash daily dash S-Y-N-B-I-O-T-I-C. Now let's get back to the episode. Another category that I think glucose spikes are really interesting for is how they combat the notion that calories are the only thing that matters for weight loss, which is something that I get asked literally every single day on my Instagram. Like, why aren't you talking more about calories, 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 calories? And I tend to focus in my recipes far more on blood sugar than I focus on calories. And I'm going to send them to this podcast now. So can you help me explain why (laughs) glucose spikes matter for weight loss? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, let's be clear. If you eat 10,000 calories a day and you keep your glucose really steady, you're still going to gain weight, right? Like calories matter in some macro sense. However, you know, we know that if you completely ignore calories and you just eat in a way that keeps your glucose levels steady, you're able to naturally reduce cravings, reduce hunger, and actually lose weight because you're just less hungry and your body's able to burn fat more. So if you focus on just calories, it can be really, really difficult to lose weight because you're not really getting at the root cause of deregulated hunger or cravings that are uh, keeping you completely tied. So glucose spikes, to me, reducing those is the number one thing to do if you're trying to lose weight. And in fact, what's really interesting is that even in the people who apply the hacks that I share in an effort to reduce glucose spikes for another, for other reasons, for example, let's say for fertility, they end up losing weight as an unintended consequence because by reducing glucose spikes, they're reducing insulin levels. So their body is in fat burning mode more, but really essentially they are reducing their hunger and their cravings. So it doesn't even feel like they're on a diet or anything. It's just this very effortless journey of getting your glucose in check, eating better, feeling awesome, and naturally losing weight. It's pretty amazing. Wasn't there a study, I totally could be remembering this wrong, but wasn't there a study too where the only, like they ate the same amount of calories, but the only thing they changed was the order of their food or something that managed their glucose spikes? Yes, absolutely. So there are a ton of studies like these that show that if you give two groups the exact same number of calories, but one keeps their glucose level steady and the other doesn't, the group that keeps their glucose level steady actually loses more weight than the other group, even though they're eating the exact same number of calories. That's so interesting. Yeah. Yes, it's so interesting. So even if you keep calories equal, right, you're able to lose more weight when you're on a diet that steadies your glucose levels. And that really, you know, completely explodes our previous understanding that all that matters are calories. Amazing. All right. We've got the sound bite that I'm going to send you to from now on. Please check out this podcast episode. (laughs) Awesome. Like I mentioned before, one of the things that I really like about your philosophy is you're not asking people to cut and limit. For you, it's really about adding things. So I would love to start with adding 
vinegar. You're sort of famous for your vinegar trick. Can you speak to that a little bit? I think especially like apple cider vinegar in the wellness world, a lot of people are like, okay, is this a bullshit thing that people just have written about? For You know, it just it has that air of bullshit to it. And I think you've shown that it's in fact not bullshit, although it's also not just apple cider vinegar. So that's interesting, too. It's totally not bullshit. So there are like dozens and dozens and dozens of studies that have studied vinegar like they was they would study a medication, like clinical trials of just adding apple cider vinegar into people's diets and watching what happens. And these studies have been done on type 1 diabetics, on type 2 diabetics, on pre-diabetics, on people without diabetes. And every single time what the researchers found was super fascinating is that by just adding one tablespoon of vinegar two to three times a day into your meals. So, you know, having it before your meals is the easiest thing to do. You just take a tablespoon of apple cider vinegar in a tall glass of water and you drink it before your meals. People lost more weight. Their health markers got better. Like their hormones got back into balance. Their diabetes slowly reversed. It just kind of insane when you read these studies, you're like, oh my God, this thing is incredible. And there's even one study that was done in Brazil where this, the researchers like literally wrote in the article, they said, vinegar is as effective as these supposed fat burners that the diet industry has made and sold to people. Vinegar is that incredible. It's really, really, really cool. Can you speak to the mechanism of action? Like I think people, I mean, don't get like too crazy sciencey, like make it in a way we can understand, but there is some really interesting science behind why it's actually helping. Yes. So there's two main mechanisms. And the first one is that when you drink vinegar, vinegar goes into your muscles and tells your muscles to increase their uptake of glucose. It basically tells your muscles that they're hungrier than they think they are. And so your muscles start soaking up the glucose from your bloodstream and storing it as later energy into the muscle. Second thing, vinegar goes into the mitochondria of your cells, so the place where energy is, uh, is handled, and tells your mitochondria to burn more fat. Literally tells your body to burn more fat. And those are the two main mechanisms by which vinegar does its incredible stuff. And so then if you extrapolate this, you know, if you have a vinegar drink before a meal, let's say you're about to eat some pasta and you, before eating the pasta, have a tall glass of water with vinegar in it. So a few things are going to happen. First of all, you're going to see on a glucose monitor that the spike that the pasta would have created is actually much, much smaller, you know, 30 to 35% smaller than if you hadn't had the vinegar. And that's because your muscles are soaking up the glucose as it arrives into your bloodstream from the pasta. Second, your mitochondria are gonna be burning more fat. And third, because the glucose spike is gonna be blunted, you're actually gonna feel so much better. You're not gonna have the energy crash three hours after your meal. You're not gonna feel like super hungry in the middle of the afternoon wanting a cookie or something. So your mood is gonna be more stable, your hunger is gonna be more stable, and just overall, you're gonna be in a better disposition for the rest of the day. So it truly is magical, and it's really cheap. Like you can just buy a bottle of vinegar at the grocery store, it's insane. And again, you can use any vinegar, right? But apple cider just tends to taste the best. And so people go for that. 
Yeah, exactly. You can use any type. Uh, don't use balsamic though, because balsamic has added sugar in it. So it kind of defeats a little bit of the purpose. But, um, for those who don't like apple cider vinegar, you know, white wine vinegar seems to be quite popular. And also because the, t it's an acquired taste. Like I love it now. I but, love it. Uh, yeah. I just, it makes me feel so healthy. It's like my brain associates it with you're doing something good for your body. But, um, you know, as you're starting, you can start with like a teaspoon, even half a teaspoon in a tall glass of water. I will just grab a bottle of water and like put vinegar in it, you know, in the afternoon and kind of sip on it. Um, so there's lots of different ways you could add it to your diet with scientifically proven incredible effects. So do you do it every day before most meals or do you kind of save it for the times you're eating pasta or you're eating a more glucose spiking dessert? Mm, I probably do it more before eating pasta. For example, tonight I'm going to have a nice pasta dish. And so I know I have my vinegar in my kitchen. And I'm like, oh, okay, after I record with Liz, I'm going to go have a little vinegar drink. Um, so no, usually before, you know, the starch or sugar heavy meals, you can do it anytime, but it's before those meals that it's going to be most useful for your body. And can you overdo it? Like if you did theoretically do it before every meal, would that be bad? No, you can't overdo it. So there's just one, okay, so two things here. There's one instance, um, this paper reported that this woman was drinking 25 tablespoons of vinegar a day <laughs> for five years. And she had some big issues and she had to go to the hospital. So just don't do that. 25 okay. tablespoons is too much. <laughs> then to, you know, listen to your body, kind of feel it out. Some people seem to have a, kind of a weird reaction to it and just really can't handle it. And that's fine. But for most of us, as long as it's diluted in water, I mean, it's totally safe to drink. You know, it's less acidic than lemon juice. It's less acidic than Coca-Cola. It's less acidic than the gastric juices in your stomach. So there's really no issue there at all. And just because I know my community is going to be like, wait, I want to get into the nittiest of nitty gritty. Is there an amount of time that's ideal before these meals to have it? And is there like a too long before that it won't matter or too short before that it won't matter? Oh, yeah, that's a really good question. So in the studies, they've tested multiple timings, 20 minutes before, 10 minutes before, five minutes before. It works. Listen, if you can only, for example, have some vinegar first thing in the morning and then not have it the rest of the day, it's still going to help. Ideally, if you want like maximum effect, have this vinegar drink 10 minutes before eating, before your meals. But it's a spectrum, you know, whatever you can do is going to be better than not doing it at all. All right. Got it. I highly recommend it. I also love it with like a little bit of cinnamon. It feel it makes it feel like a cozy like apple cider drink to me. Yes, yes. There's, I actually made this post with like different ways of drinking vinegar if you don't like the taste. And they're kind of like mocktails with the vinegar in it. So some have cinnamon, some have other stuff. So check them out. They're really cute. I love that. Okay, let's talk about the order that we eat food in because that hugely impacts your glucose curve. And I love the idea you talk about like a green, a green starter, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, completely. So, you know, you mentioned that my philosophy is not about removing stuff from the diet and it's really correct. I think it's really difficult. I personally had a lot of trouble when I had to try to follow these, like I was vegan for a bit and I was keto for a bit when I was younger and it was always so freaking hard and it just didn't work for me. And so when I discovered this science around glucose and these, when I distilled these hacks from all the scientific evidence, it was really life-changing for me because these small hacks, like for example, eating your foods in the right order, allow you to eat whatever you love eating and still steady your glucose levels to help your body and help your health. So the food order thing is really, really cool. The studies show that 
if you take two meals, two exactly identical meals, okay, with the exact same foods in them, if you consume your foods in a specific order, you will reduce the glucose spike by 40%. This specific order is eat the vegetables first, then the proteins and the fat, and then the starches and the sugars. And so I've adapted this into multiple hacks you know, for the community. The first one is obviously when you can, when it's not too complicated and you're sitting in front of a meal, try to have the veggies first, then the proteins and the fats, and then the starches. If you're having like a curry where everything's mixed together, like don't stress it, <laughs> but when it's easy, do that and it's going to help your glucose levels immensely. The second thing you can do that kind of takes this hack and brings it one step further is to add to every single one of your meals, add a green starter at the beginning. And so what I mean by green starter is just a starter that is based around vegetables. So the vegetables don't have to be green, but it's just kind of like a shortcut way of saying it. So make, you know, your favorite little vegetable dish. For example, for me, I, I love either like a really fresh um, arugula salad or maybe some roasted cauliflower with some tahini sauce and maybe like a tomato salad with nice salt and pepper and have that as a starter before all of your meals. And the reason this is so important, you know, eating your vegetables first or adding vegetables to the beginning of your meal is because in vegetables, there's a lot of fiber and fiber is like your best sidekick for steady glucose levels. Fiber, when it's eaten first, before everything else in the meal, it will go and coat the inside of your upper intestine. It creates this kind of like viscous mesh. And then everything you eat after the fiber will actually have its absorption reduced. So any starches you eat after the fiber will be absorbed at a lesser extent by your body. So less of the glucose will go through into your bloodstream. So we do this. And then the reason we also do the proteins and fats before the starches is kind of for the same idea. Proteins and fats slow down digestion. So that means that anything you eat after them will arrive in your intestine slower. So you're trying to reduce the speed and the velocity of glucose hitting your upper intestine and creating a spike. You're listening to the Healthier Together podcast. Our next partner has a product that I use literally every day. I started taking AG1 by Athletic Greens maybe five years ago because I was traveling a lot and I wanted an alternative to green smoothies when I was on the go. I actually don't think that I've taken a trip without it since because it makes such a difference with travel constipation. I went from having constant gut problems on trips to being able to poop regularly and also still feeling energized even though when I travel, I'm usually mainlining croissants like five times a day. The energy element is the main reason I started to bring it into my daily life. As I'm sure you're very sick of hearing me say, I don't drink coffee or any type of caffeinated tea in the morning. It just messes with my anxiety too much and it makes me feel jittery and then crashy later. Now, when I feel sluggish in the morning, I mix a scoop of AG1 into water and chug it down. It's honestly like instant energy. And unlike caffeine, it's real energy that comes from flooding your body with nutrients, not stealing from your adrenals. So there's no jitters, no crash, nothing. Just this feeling of like vim and vigor and being ready to take on the day. 
AG1 has 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens that were specifically selected to support your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and aging. And maybe even more importantly, they actually use clinically researched amounts of everything they include. So you're actually getting the studied benefits. I checked on that because a lot of times, even if it actually says something on the package, it's like such a tiny pinch that it's basically just marketing. It also has less than one gram of sugar, no GMOs, and no artificial anything. And they're third-party tested, which is always so important to look for. I know you're going to ask how it tastes, and I'm going to be honest, I actually love it. It tastes a little sweet, a little grassy, and really bright and fresh. I'd say it's like a really good green juice. I've also come to crave the flavor simply because I associate it with making me feel so good. I've basically Pavlov'd myself. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash healthier together. I love the travel packs. I keep one with me at pretty much all times, and the vitamin D3 and K2 is amazing. You actually want to make sure that you look for K2 with your D3 because the K2 helps the D transport calcium to your bones where it's needed rather than calcifying in your arteries. Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash healthier together to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Now let's get back to the episode. I don't want to spend too long on the notion. I think a lot of people are like, you should eat fruit alone and those types of things. And I think largely science has debunked it. But can you just speak to that briefly? The people who are like, wait, you're supposed to eat fruit first. So you digest it really fast. You don't want to slow down digestion. You want to speed in it. Yeah, completely. So I did a lot of research on this because it's a question I got asked a lot. So I traced this whole notion of you should only eat fruit on an empty stomach back to the 18th century. It's actually a French doctor who came up with this. That's so cool. I like love the idea of doing like a medical history project. That sounds so fun. <laughs> totally. Well, I just, you know, it's really important for me to understand, you know, where these things come from and really understand what the legit science and evidence is behind stuff before I discuss them. So this doctor said, if you eat fruit after everything else, they will send up vapors into your brain and rot in your stomach, causing a lot of issues. So this is where the concept of fruit rotting in the stomach comes from. It turns out nothing can rot in the stomach. It's actually a very clean uh, place. And it's actually the part of the digestive system that has the least amount of bacteria. So it's impossible for anything to rot in the stomach. And even if it were possible, which is which it is not, rotting takes way longer than just a few hours. Rotting takes days and weeks. So this whole notion is really incorrect. However, it's been also uh, talked about in the context of Ayurveda, right? People in Ayurveda say you should only eat fruit in an empty stomach. So to that, I say, listen, there's no scientific evidence. From a glucose perspective, it's better to eat fruit last so that the glucose and fructose in it don't go into your bloodstream um, as much. However, if personally, you know, you do not like eating fruit on a, after a meal or you feel kind of uneasy or you feel like it messes up your digestion in one way or another, like don't do it, you know, listen to yourself, listen to your body. But for the vast majority of people, this causes, causes no issues and it's actually better for our glucose levels. I love like reminding people that 
the science is the science and they're based on large scale studies, but your individuality still matters and you should never be like, well, but the science says and completely ignore what's happening in your own body. Like always be aware of what's happening in your own body. Completely. And also, you know, science evolves. Like who's to say that in 20 years, we're not going to discover that actually, yes, you know, fruit eaten last has an effect on this and that. Like we just don't know. So, so far we cannot say this is a real scientifically backed thing but your personal experience is very important as well i think it's really you know it's really useful to to say this okay let's get really granular on our green starter what if we're having a salad but where the dressing has like a little bit of honey in it does it need to be completely sweetener free to count as a green starter Hmm, you're asking me the tough questions now liz So it's a spectrum. It's better to have a nice salad with a little bit of honey in the dressing and maybe some vinegar as well and some nuts and some cheese in the salad than to not have the salad at all. But if you're drizzling like five tablespoons of honey onto your salad, you're probably going to counteract the positive effects of the actual fiber. So it's a spectrum, you know, it's it's best to not have any sweeteners in your green starter, but if it's something you tremendously enjoy and can't live without, like, I think it's also okay. Um, it's not all or nothing. You know, it's about finding the thing that works for you that optimizes your health as much as you can while still being enjoyable and fun. What about higher starch vegetables like a sweet potato? Yeah, so those I would count as a starch. Those would not be a green starter um, in my book just because the quantity of starch in them is so great compared to the fiber that really, you know, they count just like rice or, or pasta in a way. So in the food order, you would put those last. So it's about the ratio within it. So is that why I noticed that you put hummus on your green starters a lot? And I think of legumes being a little bit more high starch, high carb, but they also have that protein. So that makes them okay for green starters. Exactly. Yeah. And the starter that I like the most with hummus is actually uh, either cucumber with hummus or carrots with hummus, like raw carrots or raw cucumber. So altogether, they create a green starter that's pretty high in fiber and doesn't have that much starch. Um, So yeah, I would say hummus is fine in that context. Um, But sweet potatoes I would probably put towards the end. Well, and hummus, you're also adding like tahini and olive oil. You're adding things that are, I would assume, making it more glucose friendly. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And, you know, beans and legumes in general have really high protein, um, really high fiber. So I really think they're a really nice green starter for anybody who loves them. Go for it. So when you're deciding the order, are you kind of deciding like the predominant macronutrients? Okay. Yes. For example, you know, fruit, right? Take, I don't know, a banana. It has fiber in it, but it also has a lot of sugar. So I'm like, okay, well, the predominant macronutrient here is sugar. So it goes last. Similarly, like if you take, I don't know, a tomato, a tomato has a bunch of fiber. It has a tiny bit of sugar in it, but the predominant macro is fiber. So it goes first. Okay. That makes sense. And then how much do we need if we just like eat five leaves of spinach, does that count? Or is there like a tipping (laughs) point? I think the best thing you should try to do is have as much of a green starter as the starches you're going to have at the end of your meal. So try to do a one-to-one ratio between the green starter and any starches you'll have at the end. That's really the sweet spot where it blunts the glucose curve enough that you can enjoy the starches without a spike. However, I would also say 
if you're running out of your house and you're going to like a restaurant or something and you only have a couple seconds to grab something to coat your intestine before you go out and eat, I don't know, a pizza, even like a heart of palm, a few bites of broccoli that you have left over in your fridge, like anything is better than nothing. However, if you have the time to really plan and make the perfect glucose steady meal, then one-to-one ratio between green starter and starches is what I do. I know. It made me think so much about restaurants because they bring the bread basket and then you're eating the bread first. And like, it would be so much better to eat a salad and then eat the bread after the salad. Totally. And I, you know, okay. So I think maybe, I wonder where this bread thing comes from, but you know, if I had a restaurant and I wanted people to eat as much as possible and order as much as possible and order dessert, for example, I would serve bread first. bread first. Because, yeah. yeah. Because it would create a big glucose spike. And then, you know, a couple hours after, well, you know, in France, we stay in the restaurant very long, but <laughs> then inevitably a bit later, you're going to have a really big craving when the spike from the bread comes back down and crashes. And that's probably when you're going to order a dessert. So, you know, in the context of owning a restaurant, it might make sense. But at home, we well, they might not have been like, looking into the science, but also they might've noticed like, oh, people order more when we bring bread to the table. It's also, I mean, in restaurants, what they've studied, the lighting and how that impacts how much you order, the Mm -hmm. order of things on the menu, the music they play. So why not the order they serve glucose rich foods and starch rich foods? Completely. And you know, these traditions, they just kind of show up for X and Y reason, and then they're part of our culture. But what's quite encouraging is that there are many, many instances of cultures in which they actually start with the green starter at the beginning of the meal. So, you know, in Mm. France, we traditionally start with crudités, which are raw vegetables. In Italy, they start with antipasti, which is also a vegetable-based dish. You know, in the Middle East, they have these bunches of herbs that they eat by the bunch. So it's it's quite interesting to for me to find out that all of this glucose science is really backed by a lot of uh, traditions that are much older than the scientific papers that I discovered. For sure. I tend to be like, because I'm a very lazy cook, I tend to be kind of like a one big dish person versus having multiple components. How important is it to have the fiber and the fat and the protein in that order like before a meal versus adding them to a more carb-heavy meal like pasta? Like if I'm wilting greens into my pasta, is that still helping or not as much? Completely helping. It's a spectrum, right? So the worst thing you can do for your glucose level is have a meal that is just starches and sugars. Then a really good thing you can do is add fiber and protein and fat to that meal and mix them all together. Then if you really want to go like the extra mile and do the super, super good glucose thing, you would add maybe a green starter and have that first before your kind of starch combo. But just the fact that you're adding wilted greens and I assume maybe, I don't know, other sources of protein and fat to your starches, that's already fantastic. You know, it's really, really good. It's helping your body. The combination of the macronutrients is reducing the spikes. So overall, your body will be happier, you'll be healthier, you'll reduce inflammation, you'll reduce insulin release. So what you're doing is great, Liz. I approve, I approve. Okay, good. I'm glad that you're not invalidating every recipe I've ever put out. No. That's good. (laughs) That'd be really bad if my entire food philosophy ended up being debunked on this podcast, which I I would still put it out because I want people to know, but it would be... (laughs) 
a, a moment where I'd have to really sit alone with myself and reflect for a while. Yes. And to anybody listening, we did not plan this. Liz did not call me up and say, listen, you can't debunk all my recipes. You got to say they're good. Like I'm, I'm speaking to the heart here. I never do that. I never do that to my poor community. I love them too much for that. You're listening to the Healthier Together podcast. When I worked as a magazine editor, I wrote more than a thousand articles about turmeric because pretty much all of the doctors that I used as sources kept recommending it or citing it as one of the supplements that they would personally take. Here's the background. Turmeric is one of the most powerful ways to fight inflammation. In a nutshell, there are two types of inflammation, acute and chronic. Acute inflammation can actually be a good thing. It's one of the ways that your body heals and repairs itself. But when that system goes haywire, we get chronic inflammation, which essentially makes your body feel like it's constantly under attack. The vast majority of doctors I work with cite chronic inflammation as one of the root causes of so many of our modern ailments, and research links inflammation with heart disease, diabetes, autoimmune conditions, cancer, arthritis, and gut issues like Crohn's and ulcerative colitis. I am never going to sit around and tell you that a supplement will cure everything that ails you, but if you're looking for a turmeric supplement to help get your inflammation under control, I am extremely impressed with Paleo Valley's. To increase the bioavailability of turmeric, you need to consume it with black pepper, which most people know, and fat, which many people forget about. Paleo Valley's turmeric complex has black pepper and coconut oil to maximize absorption and three other powerful anti-inflammatories, ginger, rosemary, and clove, for a maximum synergistic response. It also has no fillers, binders, or preservatives and is made with all organic ingredients and just a veggie capsule. Finally, it's third-party tested, which is something I always look for in supplements as extra assurance of their quality. I've had my uncle taking this for about three months, and he's gone from having debilitating back pain due to an autoimmune condition to being almost completely pain-free. Paleovality has a number of other incredibly high-quality food-derived supplements, including a vitamin C that I adore. Vitamin C is my ultimate favorite supplement for skin health. And a NeuroEffect mushroom powder that Zach loves for increasing energy and focus. So definitely explore their website. If you'd like to check out the turmeric complex, the vitamin C, the NeuroEffect, or any of Paleo Valley's other amazing products, head over to paleovalley.com and use the code LIZM for 15% off. That's paleovalley.com and code LIZM for 15% off your order. And if you have any questions, feel free to hit me up on Instagram. I love chatting about this stuff. Now, let's get back to the episode. Okay, let's talk about changing the state of food. For instance, blending a smoothie or cooking a veggie. And then there's also the notion of like resistant starch, where if you cook and cool starches, it changes how they react with your body. Can you talk about how changing the state of a food impacts how it affects your glucose? Yes. So let's start with juice. So when you juice a fruit, you are removing all of the fiber. As I explained, the fiber is really important and protective in helping you not absorb as much of the sugar coming through afterwards. So when you juice a fruit, you're really just eating, sorry, drinking just a big glass of sugar, which is equivalent to drinking a glass of soda. Now people say, oh, well, you know, sugar from a fruit, sh- sugar in a juice comes from a fruit, so it's better for you. But actually, you know, the sugar in a Coca-Cola it actually comes from a plant too. It comes from usually beets or corn or cane. Like it also has a plant source. So regardless of its source, it's really important to understand that sugar is sugar. It's always the same molecules. It's always going to create a glucose spike in your body. 
and it's going to harm your cells and make you age faster and all this stuff. So juice from a fruit is really um, not great. Then if you juice a vegetable, you're actually fine because vegetables have very small amounts of sugar. So even though you're removing all the fiber, you're just basically drinking water with some vitamins in it. So it's not as concerning. So for people who love green juices, like celery juices and stuff, it's, it's not an issue. You just want to avoid having too much fruit juice in anything um, that you drink. Then, so that's juicing. Should we talk about blending? Yes, please talk about. I'm I'm a little nervous about this, although I know that you posted that there's like good smoothies and bad smoothies, and all the stuff you talked about adding into your smoothie was what I do, and I encourage my audience to do with my smoothie recipes. But I start every single day with a green smoothie. It is my favorite thing that I do, and I'm nervous about having it taken away from me. <laughs> That's inside a ton of greens, so a ton of leafy greens, and then um, usually some type of fruit like frozen strawberries, something like that. Sometimes there's frozen cauliflower. There's always some type of fat, like an avocado. There's always some type of protein, like pulled hemp seeds or protein powder of some sort. Often there's spices and then water is with it. And sometimes like nuts and seeds are in it as well. This, that is a glucose goddess approved smoothie. You're good. <laughs> and am I good to have, I'm jumping ahead of myself a little bit, but am I okay to have that like as my breakfast, even though you encourage savory breakfast? Like one thing I was wondering reading your work is if I should be having my smoothie at lunchtime instead of breakfast mm. and have a savory breakfast first. Listen, it's better to not eat any sugar for breakfast because the spike created in your body after breakfast really influences how you feel for the rest of the day. That being said, when I say savory breakfast, I'm really trying to teach people to not go for the very, very sweet stuff. So to not go for the, the cereals Cereal. and the pastries yeah. and the juice and the sweetened yogurts. You know, what you're having, I would actually consider in the savory camp because it's not just a fruit smoothie. So in my book, like this is okay. What you want to avoid is really just having a smoothie that is made entirely of fruit because when you blend a fruit, these are blades going really, 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 really fast and they pulverize the fiber particles. So the fiber is still technically there, but it's been pulverized into bits that are so small that it can no longer have its protective effect in your body. So you want to avoid blending fruits because then they just turn into this sugar with like nothing, no parachute to hold them back and to prevent a spike. So in smoothies, the best thing you can do is exactly what you're doing, Liz, which is greens, source of fat, source of, source of protein, some fruit for taste if you want. Like I would add easily, I have um, berries and like a third of a banana in my smoothies, but I also have a bunch of protein powder and avocado and nut butter and oils to curb the spike. Just as we said, there's a spectrum in terms of your meals and whether they're just pure starch or they're like this perfectly ordered meal, in smoothies, there's a big spectrum too. So the worst is just fruits, but then the best is really honestly what you're doing. Like, I don't have anything to say to that. I think it's an A plus glucose goddess smoothie. Am I not getting the benefits of the fiber then from it though, because I'm pulverizing the fiber? Like the greens have so much good fiber for them in you. Am I not getting those benefits? You're not, unfortunately. Um, 
But listen, because you have the fat and the protein in there, you're still slowing down digestion. But yeah, if you want to get fiber, like the best thing is to eat whole vegetables. Uh, with the smoothie, okay. you're not going to optimize for fiber. But hey, you're probably optimizing for like happiness because it makes you happy to have this beautiful smoothie you create for yourself every morning. And I'm sure hearing what's inside, considering the amount of protein and fat it has in it and the small amount of fruits... I'm pretty certain that it keeps your glucose level steady. So you're probably optimizing also for hunger and mood for the rest of the day. So it sounds good to me. And I'm getting the nutrients from the grains, even if I'm not getting the fiber direct. Exactly. Yes, correct. Okay, correct, correct. Right. All right. Let's talk about cooking food. Does that change its, its glucose interaction with your body? Yes, a little bit. Uh, absolutely. So, you know, when we cook foods, example, you take a raw carrot and you eat that, it'll make a very small spike. If you then cook it, if you boil it, it'll make a little bit of a bigger spike. If you then blend it, it'll be a bigger spike. And if you then juice it, it'll be an even bigger spike. So again, this is a spectrum. But when we cook foods, we increase the availability of the starches and sugars in that food. It's not a bad thing, right? Because it's easier for us to digest when the food is cooked. However, there's this really cool hack in cooking that when I discovered this, it changed my life. I mean, honestly, a lot of these hacks have changed my life, but this one is really cool. <laughs> so what I discovered is this concept of resistant starch. So when you cook a starch, let's take like a sweet potato because we discussed them earlier. If you take a raw sweet potato and then you cook it, so in the oven or you boil it or any form of cooking, and then you let it cool down. This can be either in your fridge, it can be just on your countertop, it can be in the freezer, whatever. You let it cool completely. What ha what's happening inside the potato is that some of the starch is turning into this thing called resistant starch. And resistant starch is just fiber. It's just a different word to say the same thing. It's turning into this protective fiber that then coats your intestine and reduces glucose spikes. So you've essentially increased the fiber content of the sweet potato by cooking it and cooling it. And then when you eat it again, and you can reheat it, by the way, no problem. Reheating it does not remove the res resistant starch that was created. You're creating a smaller glucose spike in your body for the exact same potato. And it tastes the same. And, you know, it doesn't change anything to the enjoyment of your meal or anything. It's just improving the effect of the sweet potato on your body. And it's helping your health. So it's a very, very cool hack. Especially because I love leftovers. For best. Yeah, it's the best argument for eating <laughs> leftovers that I've ever heard. Yeah, I love leftovers for breakfast. It's one of my favorite things. So, you know, leftovers, put them overnight, have them for breakfast, um, and they'll create a smaller spike than the night before, which is so cool. It's so cool. It's so cool. I have a few of these tests um, on my page. I think it was actually I with sweet potato. It's very, very cool. Science is amazing. I'm so glad now to have the glucose data from my glucose monitor to be able to explain this and illustrate this and help people mm -hmm. visualize what all the scientific papers say. It's um, it's a blessing. It's really awesome. I do. I think that it's there's so much wonderful science out there. But first of all, finding somebody like yourself who can actually read a study, I think that people sometimes discount how difficult it is to actually interpret oh, studies yeah. and you need it's quite tough. a bit of training to do so. And then to make that accessible and easy for the rest of us to understand is so hard to find, honestly. Okay. What about the zero calorie? Like I want to particularly focus on the natural sweeteners because I think a lot of people listening to this podcast have probably like already aspartame, you know, if they have it, they probably know that they, it's not great for them, but stuff like stevia or monk fruit, 
that often gets a pass in the wellness world. And then I saw on your Instagram that smart sweets spiked your blood sugar a ton, which really surprised me. So can you speak to that? Yeah, so the reason smart sweets um, spike my blood sugar is not because of the sweetener they use. It's actually because they used um, pre-soluble tapioca fiber as one of their ingredients, which is listed on the nutrition label as fiber, but actually is not fiber. It actually turns to glucose when digested. And I believe they've changed this um, since. But that was really why the spike was happening. But also, you know, they say on the packaging that there's, you know, carbs in their candy. It's not like supposed to be this completely flat glucose response. But in terms of the sweeteners, so stevia is a really good option. Allulose is a new sweetener kit on the block who's very, very cool. And then monk fruits also um, are really good options. So yeah, is there anything in particular you wanted to ask or in terms of glucose levels, these are all great. They are all great. So I just, yeah. I've heard stuff like sometimes your body reacts to artificial sweeteners or things that taste sweet, even if they have zero calories, as if you're adding sugar to your body, that doesn't seem to be the case for these more plant-based natural alternative sweeteners. So for these plant-based ones, what's important is that they don't trigger insulin release. And as I mentioned, you know, insulin, too much insulin is one of the root causes of the hormonal issues and, and a lot of other problems as well in our body. So that's, that's the good news. And then of course, you know, sweeteners have their own set of effects. Like they increase your desire to eat sweet stuff. And maybe because you have a sweetener, you think, Oh, I can have this ice cream now because I, you know, I didn't have real sugar earlier. They, of course, keep our dependence on, on sweet taste, but I mean, it's better to drink a diet soda than to drink a real, you know, can of soda. I mean, it's a spectrum, guys. Like, we know sweeteners have an effect on our body and our microbiome, et cetera, but like real sugar is real, not very good for us either. We can't, you know, forget that. We have to think about the alternative. In a vacuum, would I tell you add sweeteners to your diet if you don't already have them? No, of course not. But if you're telling me I'm addicted to sugar, I can't get off it, should I start using, you know, these natural sweeteners instead? I would say yes, absolutely. Start using them, then decrease so that you slowly, you know, um, stop craving the sweet taste as much. It's all it's all relative. There's all a spectrum. I think often we hear black and white things like, oh, this is so bad. This is so bad. Or this is so good. This is so good. It's like, well, you know, you have to think about the pros and the cons, the context, the alternative. It's really important to bring some balance into this um, world of nutrition that's very black or white. So that's what I try to do. That's why all my answers are like, well, it depends. <laughs> I totally agree. And I think it depends on your goals as well. Like I think sometimes people come to me and they're like, oh, should I do, you know, people are taking this supplement and this supplement and this supplement. And I'm like, well, are you trying to help with your gut health, your anxiety or your hormones? Like everybody's goals are different and the way they should be approaching their health is different as such. Could not agree more completely. Absolutely. You're listening to the Healthier Together podcast. You all already know that I am obsessed with these. They have been my trail and life companion for literally years. I honestly don't think that I have taken a single hike in the last maybe three years without a Go Macro bar. I also have one in my purse at all times. They are so delicious, and they're one of the only bars out there that actually makes me feel full and not all sugar-high jittery. We will get into my favorite flavors in a second, and I have very strong feelings about this. But first, a bit about Go Macro. They're a mother-daughter-owned company, which I love, and all of their products are made with 100% renewable energy and sustainably sourced ingredients, which I quite possibly love even more. 
Macro bars are made from 100% plant-based ingredients and they're certified organic, vegan, gluten-free, kosher, non-GMO, clean, raw, and soy-free. They also have three nut-free flavors, including oatmeal chocolate chip, maple sea salt, and sunflower butter and chocolate, and nine certified FODMAP-friendly flavors. So no matter what your dietary needs are, you can find a bar for you. Okay, let's talk about flavors. I am truly obsessed, truly obsessed with the oatmeal chocolate chip. It has these like little oat flecks in it that are kind of crunchy and so satisfying. I like crave these. I would choose to eat one for dessert if it was on the menu at a restaurant. My other favorite is the double chocolate with the peanut butter chips because the peanut butter chips are life-giving. And Zach, of course, likes, you guessed it, the mocha one. Truly, these bars have ruined most other bars for me. If you want to try Go Macros macro bars for yourself, you can get a whopping 30% off your order of $50 or more plus free shipping by going to gomacro.com and using the code HEALTHIERTOGETHER. Again, that is gomacro.com and the code is HEALTHIERTOGETHER. Now, let's get back to the episode. You mentioned sugar cravings, and I think sugar cravings are a big one that a lot of my community, well, I'm not even going to couch it in that. I struggle with sugar cravings a lot, and I know you have some fun hacks for dealing with sugar cravings, so can you please help me? Yeah, of course, Liz. And listen, I used to have so many cravings, just for the little story. I grew up, when I was younger, I had for breakfast every morning a Nutella crepe, like a big crepe with a bunch of Nutella in it. And then by 11, I was like, I need a cookie. I'm so famished. So I know the experience of um, really being on that cravings roller coaster. So my cravings um, tips. So first of all, the first thing that I do when I have a craving is that I set a timer for 20 minutes because studies show that very often a craving is due to your glucose levels dropping after a spike because you just ate something that created a spike. So I put a timer for 20 minutes because often what happens is that during those 20 minutes, my glucose levels has have time to go back up and the craving dissipates. So that's step one. And just tell yourself, you know, listen, if I still want the thing after 20 minutes, I'm going to eat it. So it doesn't feel like, you know, you're preventing the eating thing. But it's a helpful way to understand where the craving is coming from. Then if you still want to eat the thing. So let's say, Liz, what's what's one of your uh, go-to cravings foods? Chocolate chip cookies. Okay. So if you really want to eat the chocolate chip cookies, there's a few things to do. Because I want you to be able to eat them and enjoy them. What I don't want for you is I don't want these cookies to create a cycle of cravings where three hours later you want more and you want more and you want more. Okay, so the real uh, solution here is finding a way for you to eat those cookies without starting the roller coaster of glucose levels that's going to keep you on the cravings loop. So what I do is... I bake the cookies. I love chocolate chip cookies too, by the way. (laughs) So I bake the cookies. As I'm baking the cookies, I have a tall glass of water or bottle of water with the vinegar inside, okay, to prepare your body. Then second is I'm going to preload or like before I have the cookies, I'm going to have something else. Like for example, 10 almonds. So with the almonds, you're adding fiber to your body. So you're preparing your intestine to not absorb too much of the cookies. And then finally, with the cookies... I will add something else, for example, a big glass of milk or some Greek yogurt or something kind of fatty um, to have with them, again, to slow down how quickly the glucose from the cookies is going to hit my body. 
And then after I eat the cookies, I'm going to use my muscles. So either clean up the kitchen because you made a mess or go for a walk. You know, if you have a dog, walk your dog, dance, do some push-ups, watch a movie and do a plank in front of the TV, fold the laundry that's been sitting on your floor for five weeks, <laughs> anything that uses your muscles, because that's going to even more reduce the spike by allowing your muscles to take up the glucose for energy. So all in all, what has happened is that you've had your cookies, but the glucose spike they created in your body is much, much smaller. So what does this mean? Less inflammation, less insulin release, which is really cool, slower aging, less likelihood of weight gain, and most importantly, I think if you know you're somebody who suffers with cravings a lot no creation of the cravings roller coaster so you all of a sudden can kind of claim back you know your your mood and your hunger hormones and they become more balanced and so slowly if you do this over time you'll notice that the cravings might still be there but you'll know how to uh, manage them in a way that doesn't create more cravings later and I'm all for eating cookies, you know, a couple times a month or whatever, how many times you want to eat cookies. We just want to make sure we're doing it in a way that doesn't put us into a stage of complete dysregulation and lack of control, right? That's really what we want to help people avoid. Yeah, for sure. That's that's all super, super helpful. Are there any foods other than the vinegar, like not food groups like fibrous vegetables or whatever, but individual foods that flatten the glucose curve? I know that people talk about cinnamon a lot. Is that true? Or mm. Yeah, so cinnamon works only if you take it over a long period of time. So you have to take cinnamon for like five to six weeks um, daily for it to start having an overall glucose lowering effect. But you can't just like, you can't just sprinkle cinnamon on your food and for it to flatten the glucose curve. It's like a, it's a level that has to build up slowly in your body. So it's not like vinegar because vinegar is one shot, you know, it works right away, immediately, even just once. But it would be if you were concerned about flattening your glucose spikes overall, like I put cinnamon in my green smoothies often. I love yes. using it in curries. I love using it in like a bolognese sauce. I think it's just a great spice that would be worth incorporating regularly. Completely. And, you know, spices have a lot of other effects, positive effects on our body. So it's not always all about glucose. So, yes, no downsides to cinnamon. And if you can build up that level in your body over time, it's going to help reduce your overall um, glucose variability. So all good. And then you mentioned moving your body, moving your muscles after having the sugar. In general, do you think that working out after you've eaten is better? Or I know a lot of people in the health world think that fasted workouts are better. What's your take on that? So my take on it is that exercise anytime is better than no exercise at all. However, in the studies, if you're looking at glucose, it's best if you can exercise after you eat. The studies also show that exercising before you eat helps reduce the glucose curve of the next meal. But if you have the choice and it's all the same to you, then after you eat is the most effective way to use your muscles um, to flatten the glucose curve. And you can do any type of exercise. What I recommend to people is going for a 10-minute walk if they can. Or like, for example, you know, if you're in a building or something, going up and down a few flights of stairs a couple of times. Anything you can do to activate those muscles so they start soaking up the glucose will be super, super beneficial. Uh, but again, you can do it anytime, but after the meal is the most effective if you want optimum efficiency. <laughs> Are there any other non-food related things that we should be adding in to positively impact our glucose spikes? I'm thinking like meditation or cold showers or taking time in a sauna. 
Yes, all of the above. Anything that helps your body either relax or your nervous system relax so that your cortisol levels decrease. Because the more we're stressed, the more our glucose levels are deregulated. So any of those things, really, really helpful. Yes. Are there favorite ones among, like, are there ones that you've noticed with your own monitor are especially helpful? Honestly, going to bed early and sleeping. <laughs> it's incredible. If you compare, um, let's say, you know, the my, my regular morning cappuccino, depending how much I've slept the night before, the impact on my glucose levels will be very different. If I'm poorly rested and I'm tired and uh, I have that same cappuccino, it will make it twice as big of a spike as if I have wow. after I'm rested. Yeah. And so there's a, there's a team of researchers in the UK out of King's um, King's College London that just came out with a really cool paper like two weeks ago showing exactly this. Yet another study showing that sleep deprivation has a really big impact on our glucose levels. Now, I know, you know, for a lot of people listening, you know, you have kids, you have obligations, you don't get enough sleep. So I would just say if that's your case, um, a little bit of exercise first thing in the morning, even five minutes of a high intensity, like jumping jacks, whatever you can do, find a short YouTube video you like and do five minutes of exercise. This helps your body reset a little bit and handle glucose levels better. And then again, as always, avoid having just sugar for breakfast because that's just going to deregulate your glucose levels even more and make you even more tired throughout the day. All right. Amazing. What about coffee in the morning? Is that having, if we have it black, is that having any impact on our blood sugar? You know, that's a really interesting one because I think it seems to depend person to person. So some people, when they have a black coffee, it increases their stress levels um, and they get, you know, a bit anxious and jittery and that can create a glucose spike. In other people, zero impact. So this seems to be very, very individual. And this is actually on my to-do list. I want to do a deep dive into coffee um, and its effects on glucose levels, you know. Isn't there a gene that impacts how you absorb caffeine? Yes, I, I haven't gotten genetically tested, but I feel like we joke. Yeah. Do you think that has something to do with it? Ah, probably, you know, definitely. So the, the caffeine metabolism gene is a real thing. You know, I worked at 23andMe when I was working in California, so I'm very familiar with all this stuff. And it's really interesting. It just shows how quickly your body can um, dispose of and get rid of the caffeine, break it down. Um, and dispose of it. So if you have the slow metabolizer gene, caffeine stays in your body much longer. And I'm sure it has an impact on the spike it creates. I'm going to have to do a deep dive and I'll get back to you on that one. <laughs> can you leave us with one homework assignment that we can do if we just want to start impacting our glucose and really seeing results that will get us excited to move forward with this in our lives? Hmm. Yes, I'm actually going to say something that we haven't touched upon that I think is a really nice little hack. So next time that it's the middle of the day and you want to eat something sweet, maybe you see a really nice pastry at the coffee shop or you're like, oh, I want a Snickers bar. Set it aside and have it as dessert for your next meal instead of between your meals. And uh, that way you can still enjoy it, but with a much smaller impact on your glucose levels. And then start following the hacks, like start adding them, try them for a couple of days, you know, start, try them for three days and you'll see the impact on your body and your mind are absolutely tremendous. And um, I hope they'll help you as much as they've helped me because it's really life changing. Well, and just to put a, a little fine point on it, 
the reason that getting that coffee shop pastry and putting it after is because all of that food order stuff that we talked about, right? So you'd be full of your veggies and your proteins and your fats, and you would actually absorb less of the glucose from that coffee shop pastry. You got it. Yes. Perfect. Amazing. Amazing. All right. Can you tell us where everybody can find you, see the graphs, find out more of your amazing work? Yes. So honestly, you know, this whole journey for me started on started on Instagram and it's still where everything is. So my Instagram is glucose goddess, the glu- glucose goddess. Yes. Glucose goddess, glucose goddess. <laughs> and then uh, I just finished writing a book. Actually, it's coming out in uh, on the 5th of April. And I'm super excited about it. And you'll hear all about it on my Instagram. So if you're interested and you want um, you want to hear more about that, come and follow me. Welcome to the community. And I've been lucky enough to sneak peek a little advanced copy of the book. And it is phenomenal. You should just Aww. go and pre-order it right now. Also, pre-ordering is really, really helpful for authors. So it's a really wonderful way to support authors that you love. But this is one that you want on your list 100%. Oh, thank you, Liz. Yeah, the book is called Glucose Revolution. You can find it anywhere that books are sold. (laughs) Amazing. Thank you so much for taking the time to share all of your amazing wisdom with us today, Jesse. Thank you for having me, Liz. It was so fun. Thank you for your very, very good questions. It was a pleasure. I hope you loved this episode with Jesse. Remember to tag us both in any hacks that you try. I am at Liz Moody and she's at Glucose Goddess on Instagram. And one final quick thing before you go, I was talking to Zach the other day about how excited I was about the podcast and how I really want to make this podcast huge. I love, love, love the community that we've built, and I am so grateful to the tens of thousands of you that choose to spend this time with me every week, but I'm just going to speak this into existence. I want this show to be like Tim Ferriss or Lewis Housebig, where it gets literally millions of downloads every single week and I can get the absolute best guests for you and we can do live events when it's safe and just all the fun stuff. Honestly, it also bothers me just how many of these types of podcasts are hosted by men. Like the first two ones that came to my mind that were huge are hosted by men, which is just kind of annoying. Anyway, so I was brainstorming with Zach about how to make that happen. And he was like, well, did you ask your community? So I have two very specific requests for you. First, if you could write a rating or review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Yes, Spotify has reviews now too, and you can totally do one on both platforms. I would so appreciate it. I have a goal of 2,000 reviews on Apple Podcasts, and we are so close. And if everyone listening literally wrote a super quick review right now, it literally takes 60 seconds. We would blow that number out of the water. And second, if you could just share one link of an episode of the podcast that you think would resonate or the whole podcast if you can't think of a specific episode or don't want to take the time to with someone in your life that you think would love it, it would just make the biggest difference in the world. We have episodes on fear of flying. If you know anyone dealing with that, we have episodes on gut health, episodes on friendship. There's truly something for everyone. But again, like if you don't want to take the time to do that, I totally get that. You can just click the little share button and share the entire entire podcast and be like, hey, I think you might like this podcast. Give it a listen. Give a little scroll to see if any episodes appeal to you. It would mean the world. And that's it. That is my whole request. I honestly debated even asking, but I also think that I can't sit here on a pod preaching about people going for what they want in life and not like go after the thing that I want more than anything else in the world. I love my social media community and my books, but this podcast is where I put my heart and soul. I love it so much, and honestly, I think it's the thing that I'm best at, and I'm proudest of it because of that. So 
thank you for being here and for being part of this ride. And honestly, if you don't do any of that stuff, I love you wholeheartedly either way. And honestly, also, if you have any ideas for helping the pod reach new audience, I am all ears. DM me on Instagram or shoot me an email. I'm Liz at Liz Moody. I would love to hear. All right. I love you guys so much. And I cannot wait to see you next week on the next episode of the Healthier Together podcast. When Zach and I started Healthy Convo Co., we needed to find the easiest way to get conversation cards from our warehouse onto our website and into your hands. I thought it was going to be the hardest part of starting a business, but it wound up being one of the easiest because we just used Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling gorgeous ceramics to sip morning tea from or beautiful journals to write prompts from the we're all in this together deck in, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. It helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. I know as a consumer, I'm way more likely to buy when a website has Shopify. It has all of my information saved, so checkout becomes a one-click situation, even on small business sites, which makes me so happy because I love shopping small. But it's not just small. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash lizm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash Liz M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash Liz M.